Hi friends, we begin this week's sad study with the advantage of knowing that there is a happy ending, which I'll admit sometimes makes it too easy for me to skip over the torturous parts of Jesus' sacrifice for us, the climactic events leading up to his crucifixion and resurrection. So, as I began my preparation today, uh, I began not from a position of knowing, but a few questions that I kept in mind. And the first one is, what's with the word passion, and what does it have to do with the crucifixion, and how do we use it in this context? And the second is, why does Jesus have to suffer like this at all? So I'm going to start with the first question because it's the easiest, because you can look them up in a dictionary. But when I do look up the word passion in a dictionary, I get something like um, a, 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 the definition, something like a powerful or compelling emotion that is linked to physical acts. That's the passion that you and I are most used to saying. And I thought about Jesus in that regard, and I thought, well, yes, he has a passion for his ministry. Certainly he does. Is that what this is talking about? But then when I look up... In the Bible, for example, a search under Bible Gateway, and I look up the word passion, I don't see that in any other reference except for physical passions, sexual passions, lust. And I think, well, certainly that must not be what we're talking about here. Perhaps it's the word zeal, as in zeal in, for his house consumes him, or the zealous people that were um, um, marching toward uh, the, the, righteous of Isra the righteousness of Israel or those who were zealous for the cause of Christ, a real zeal. And that seems to appeal to that. It says, for example, um, uh, the appropriate term says um, a religious fervor. And that, and that seems right too. But when I think about Jesus in this context, I don't see him so much in religious fervor, more like a sheep going to slaughter. And so I look up the word passion again and I see, oh, in Latin, it means the word suffering, suffering unto death in the original form. And for the first two centuries, that was the use of the word passion. And it isn't until about the 11th century, as language morphs, that it began to take on those other um, attributes. So now I understand when I look at the word passion, I understand the suffering of the flesh. And suffering is a bit on my mind today, my own flesh, as it were. Last, uh, within the last two weeks, I, um, I had a, an elective surgery. I had a total knee replacement, and um, it hurts. It hurts. I, uh, I knew what I was doing. I, I went to the doctor, and they gave me a book, and uh, several doctors looked at uh, my MRIs and said, well, your knee is a mess, and there's nothing you can do but get it replaced. So I, I took their word for it after a time. It took me several years, but I did it because, it, you know, it's necessary. I mean, my knee is a mess, and I have some years to live, and it, it doesn't work anymore, and I, I need to get it fixed. And I did it with full knowledge that it, well, book knowledge, let's say this. I, I could read about what they were going to do, and I could track what was going to happen, and I could even watch videos of how it was going to happen. But I didn't feel it until I felt it. But I did this for a purpose, so that I could have a new body part, and so that that body part would be better than the old one, the one that got ruined in 1976 that's been bone on bone for some 45 years or so. That part needed to go. It was an old part. It was useless to me, and it needed to be redone. And I did it to be productive, because I have grandchildren to play with, and ballroom dancing to learn, and many other things to do. So I, I, I subjected myself to the suffering for a greater cause. It was purpose-filled, it was productive, and it, and it was necessary. And so here I say, you know, I have head knowledge about it, and I subjected myself to it willingly. And um, then I think about Jesus' suffering, and it's really nothing compared to his. 
but it does help me today to, um, to feel some of the feelings. So today, in my frailty, I'm going to attempt to consider those four aspects of Jesus' suffering as well. In the fact that Jesus, that suffering is physical, we're talking about a painful and bloody experience. Suffering is purposeful, and in this case, it establishes God's superiority. Jesus' suffering is productive. It bears witness to him. And Jesus' suffering is necessary. It solves an ultimate problem, but ultimately, it's necessary because he said so. We're going to start with the physical. Did you know that blood is mentioned hundreds and hundreds of times in Scripture? And Jesus' suffering is bloody indeed. But uh, Leviticus, way back in the Old Testament, tells us the life is in the blood. So when the blood is poured out in the Bible, metaphorically or actually, pay attention. You know, of course, Jesus said he poured out his blood for us. So to understand the why of the blood, you have to begin at the beginning. I often say, where I, I've often come to this conclusion lately, that everything you need to know about why of Jesus is in the book of Genesis. In fact, the first few chapters. So here, we can see why they're suffering. If we look back again at Genesis 3, where we pick up right after Adam and Eve, doubt God, listen to Satan, partake of the tree of the tree of knowledge, and the consequence for them is painful, actually, and even bloody, something I never was attuned to until I read it with this pair of glasses on. So in Genesis 3, 1 through 22, this is excerpted. I've got some cuts in here. Verse 13, when the Lord said to the woman, what is this that you have done? To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. And to Adam he said, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field, and to dust you shall return. Did you hear about the pain? Now those of us who have had children known the pain of childbirth, and we also know that it's not necessarily without its own bloody circumstances. But I never noticed before that Adam's curse would give him pain, but it would be the sort of pain that involved thorns and thistles, which prick and make you bleed. Right away we see that there's pain in production and pain in reproduction. So for women, childbearing becomes painful. For the men, the work of the ground is painful. The problem evokes pain, but the solution also requires pain but it's a substitutionary pain. So we know that Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden, but first God clothes their nakedness with the skins of animals. And here we see that the first bloody sacrifice was to cover the very people who caused the sin. And that sacrifice to get animal skins over the, over the sinful bodies of Adam and Eve caused pain to a substitutionary animal. And it continues through the Old Testament. God established a worship standard right away that gave primacy to animal sacrifices. You can read about that in the story of Cain and Abel. 
and the equation of substitutionary death is in place from the beginning there, and it's a covenantal sign between God and his people all throughout the Old Testament, very highly regulated, as you know, the shedding of blood and sacrifice of animals and the certain kinds of animals on the certain days and the blood on the covenantal, on the cover of the, of the uh, tabernacle, the Holy of Holies on Yom Kippur. Blood and animal sacrifice are huge in the scriptures that lead up to our story of Jesus. So we see blood sacrifice as being a big deal. And this is the economy that Jesus lived in. It's the economy that we live in. But did Jesus have to suffer? You know, he was in the desert before he began his ministry. You'll remember that Satan was tempting him, and he gave him chances to avoid all kinds of things. Hunger, of course, turn the, the stones into bread, that he was experiencing right then. But Satan said, you could throw yourself down and we would catch you up so you wouldn't even scratch your heel against a stone. Satan promised him an escape from the kind of pain if only he would change his worship from the one and almighty God to Satan himself. And Jesus said no to his own rescue so he could say yes to ours. Even at that point, Jesus was well aware that his rescue of us would be a painful one. And in those days leading up to that great sacrifice, at the end of, of our time with him at the Last Supper, and we read about this in last week's study where Jesus goes off to the Garden of Gethsemane, we find him pouring out his heart to God in Matthew 26, 27 through 29. This is not on your screen, but I'll read it to you. It says, And he, Jesus, took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink all of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the many, for the forgiveness of sins. He's telling us his blood is to be poured out. But if he was God, why didn't he just save himself from that? You know, that, those are the words of the taunters when he was on the cross. But Jesus knew, as fully God, that he must take on the mantle fully human of mortality and it was not without great anxiety in Luke 22 we see him he came and went this is what I was referencing earlier in the garden of Gethsemane Luke 22 verse 39 through 44 and he came out and went as was his custom to the Mount of Olives and the disciples followed him and when he came to the place he said to them pray that you may not enter into temptation and he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. Later in Matthew and Mark, quoted, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He was sweating blood. According to gotquestions.com, which is a great website for a person like me who starts with questions, this may be a reference to a medical condition, hematidrosis, it goes by other names as well. When the sweat glands, which are surrounded by tiny blood vessels, constrict and dilate to the point of rupture, causing blood to effuse, but more importantly, it's the intense anguish and sorrow that Jesus felt that we need to pay attention to. It says there, being God, Christ knew all that was going to happen to him. 
He knew in painstaking detail the events that were to follow soon after he was betrayed by one of his very own disciples. He knew he was about to undergo several trials where all of the witnesses against him would lie. He knew that many who had hailed him as the Messiah only days earlier would now be screaming for his crucifixion. He knew he would be flogged nearly to the point of death before they pounded the mental spikes into his flesh. He knew the prophetic words of Isaiah spoken seven centuries earlier that he would be beaten so badly that he would be disfigured beyond any man and beyond human likeness. He knew. And yet he said, yes, suffering is most certainly painful. But suffering is also purposeful in that it establishes God's superiority. You remember that the first sin was the attempt to take God's authority as our own. It's the one, you know, did God really say or do I really know? And from that point on, we've been being schooled in who is God and who isn't. Spoiler alert, it's not me. First, uh, let me see, I've, I've forgotten to put what chapter this is from, but... Um, I think this is from Leviticus. Yes, it is. Often in Leviticus, we, we, we have lots of um, understandings about uh, who God is and who God gives it. You see, the, the Ten Commandments, the, the very first commandment, you know, uh, have no other gods beside you. If we only followed that, we'd be good. But we mess that up right away. Leviticus 17.5 begins like this. This is to the end that the people of Israel may bring their sacrifices, that they sacrifice in the open field, and that they may bring them to the Lord, to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and sacrifice them as sacrifices of peace offerings to the Lord. And the priest shall throw the blood on the altar of the Lord at the entrance to the tent of meeting and burn the fat for a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And they shall no more sacrifice their sacrifices to goat demons after whom they whore. This shall be a statute forever for them throughout their generations. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. The book of uh, Leviticus is often viewed primarily as a collection of laws that are void of grace. But understood in context of the whole story of redemption, these laws lay the foundation for the ultimate atonement. I mean, the fact that we're given a chance at atonement at all, and then the ultimate atonement that Jesus would provide, demonstrate that this is purposeful suffering. Pur purposeful suffering of the sacrificial animals, purposeful suffering of those animals on our behalf, in our stead. Is all suffering purposeful? Does suffering itself give glory to God? I would say no, because I've been a whiny sufferer all week. But then I thought about the most famous sufferer in Scripture, and his name is Job. So let's consider Job. Those are the words that... God himself said to Satan when he was roaming the earth looking for someone to taunt. Chapter 1 of the book of Job tells us that, the that Job supremely fears God and is upright and blameless. And Satan asserts that the only reason Job has such a righteous view of God and that God has allowed him is that God has allowed him so many earthly successes. I mean, who doesn't praise God when things are going well? But God knows otherwise. And on purpose, and this is challenging, he offers Job to Satan. Consider Job, he says to Satan. And so to test his righteousness, Satan removes, first of all, all of Job's wealth and prosperity and even his children. 
And Job answers this way in, in chapter 1, verse 20. Then Job arose, tore his robe, in lament, shaved his head, fell on the ground, and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my brother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Even with that great loss, blessed be the name of the Lord. This is purposeful suffering. But Satan's not satisfied. He says, well, everything he has is gone, but what if, his, what if he suffers physically? What if his body hurts? And the Lord allows him to um, break Job's body, not to take his life, but to take his health. And Job too, the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Here it is that there is none like him on earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. And then Satan answered the Lord, skin for skin, all that man has he will give for his life, but stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, he's in your hand, only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Now this is chapter 1 and 2. And Job goes through many chapters struggling with the pain that he is suffering, but coming back still to the fact that God is God and Job is not. Job suffered mightily in his body, in his community, and in his spirit, but he understand the one true God. And in all his angst, he remained mindful of God's authority over his life, even to the point of witnessing to others. And as a result, God restored all that he had ever had twice as much. So in this story of Job, which most consider a historical story, we see a foreshadowing of God's beloved enduring suffering for a greater purpose to multiply, multiply the glory of God. And that brings us to our next point. Suffering is productive. It is productive in that it bears witness. In Romans 5.3, famously we hear, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. We rejoice in our sufferings. Well, okay, start there. Rejoice in our suffering because suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope doesn't put us to shame, because the hope we have is in the risen Christ. Our bodies are falling apart. Yes, this body will break into dust, but my hope is in the risen Christ, which is beyond dust. Some of us have been privileged to sit by a saint who has prayed God consistently amidst great pain and suffering. I have known such people. I'm thinking of a person in my mind's eye right now who amidst great suffering, physical suffering, treatments, cancer, 
always looked to heaven, praised God, knew her hope, rejoiced in her suffering because her suffering produced an endurance. Endurance over years. Her character was mighty and her hope was obvious and she witnessed to me. And I'm whining over elective surgery. It's that kind of productive suffering that testifies to who God is. Jesus in his last moments affected those watching likewise. We see it in Luke 23. Jesus is on the cross. It reads, chapter, uh, verse 44. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light faded, and the curtains of the temple was torn in two. And then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle when they saw what had taken place returned home, beating their breasts. They had witnessed suffering for a great purpose. Certainly this man was innocent. There are many great saints and martyrs who have glorified God in their living and dying. And I am mindful of some of them now, but the suffering Jesus of Jesus was not only productive as martyrdom is, or as dying with great dignity is, it was necessary. Suffering is necessary. And that brings us back to that why question. When I was a child, I asked my mother too many questions, and she often answered, because I said so. Why, why, why? Because I said so. I didn't like it. I didn't like it. But it certainly did determine who had the authority in the household. Jesus said so. As he was approaching these final days and hours, the disciples wanted to know, why, why, why? Why are you walking into trouble? Why are you going that direction? Why are you saying these things? Why would you subject, subject yourself to that? And in Mark 8, 31, he says, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribed and be killed and after three days rise again. He said this three times. He said it in Mark 8, 31, Mark 9, 31, Mark 10, 33. He knew exactly what he must do. And he told them, I must suffer, be rejected, be killed, and rise. It was necessary for the rising. Jesus had often spoken of the persecution and murder of Old Testament prophets and identified himself with them. There are countless references to that. But despite so many clear predictions and these clear statements, I must do this exactly, those closest to Jesus were slow to understand and quick to rebuke him and even deny him, as we read about Peter last week. But none of that deterred him. He walked toward the suffering instead of away from it. Because he's more than a prophet. He's more than a martyr or a saint dying in reverence to God. He is the answer to all the questions. He is the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. He is the sacrifice referenced in Genesis 3 that covers the sin of our nakedness. He is 
rising and living again. He is mortality put to death and life everlasting. He is the Lamb. And that is the answer to the ultimate question. Jesus died so that we could live in right relationship with God forever and ever. And as I repair this body that I have for the time that I have on earth until it becomes dust again, I am mindful of the fact that this is not the end and that my hope, my suffering, in any form that it takes, leads to the greatest hope at all. Good Friday is only good because it paves the way for Easter Sunday. And I look forward to sharing the next week's preparing our hearts with gratitude for this suffering, but with a mind for the purpose he had from the beginning, the death of death itself and the great alleluia that follows. May God bless you and keep you as you celebrate this Easter season. Amen. <laughs>